The relationship between China and the developed economies in the West has been a subject of growing international debate. Western governments and companies are keenly developing stronger trade links with China and seeking to benefit from the Chinese economic miracle. As China's predicted growth continues, what are the potential impacts for Western economies, and how might these developments affect the political and social environment of China itself? With me is Professor Sean Breslin from the Department of Politics and International Studies. Sean, um, in recent years we've seen Western economies falling over themselves to strengthen links with China. What is it that China's doing that's making it so attractive? Well, I think probably the best starting point is to divide China into two. On one side, we have China as a great potential market. Still not a huge market, but a market that people think and hope will grow ever bigger and will become a major destination for exports from UK, from Europe, from America, pretty much from everywhere. On the other side, we have a China which is a supplier of cheap labour, a supplier of exports to other destinations. At the moment, it's this China which is the dominant China in the global economy, It's a China where foreigners invest to produce using cheap labour, often using components that are imported into China from other places, and then exported to the US, to Europe, and to Japan. In the long term, it's the other China, the China as a a market, demanding Western technology, demanding Western goods that most people hope will be the future, but also perhaps is the biggest challenge to the West in the long term. How do you think the... The ongoing investment now in the foreign investment in China, looking at uh, the supply chain side of things, how, how is that actually affecting the economic situation on the ground in China at the moment? Up until very recently, it was the case that uh, the investment into China almost entirely used imported components. So if you go to Hong Kong and look at the container ports, you'll see ships coming in, unloading containers full of components, then onto the new road network up into uh, the Pearl River Delta where the goods are just sewn together or put together, um, very low uh, technology, low skills, then shipped back out to the same container port. I mean, the road is incredible. It's a two-way flow of traffic that is uh, in a 24 hours a day. This now is beginning to change. It's been quite slow in changing, but it is beginning to change. Domestic Chinese companies have reorganised their, their processes, have now become to supply the export industry. It's also true that foreign investors are now not just going to China because of cheap manual labour, but because of skilled labour. So what we're beginning to see is Chinese domestic industries more and more integrating with that supply chain. It's still relatively minor, it's still a slow process, but it's the movement into the the next level of development, the next stage of production. We had the example last year where um, the Chinese industries were were involved with the collapse of the rover deal, a rover company in the, oh. in the West Midlands. Um, and there was obviously a lot of concern at the time that the Chinese companies were getting involved to strip the knowledge, strip the assets, sure. and to build up their own expertise. Uh, yeah, one of the first impulses in getting involved in the global political economy in China was to increase the technological know-how, increase the technological base. By and large, because of the process that I've just been talking about, investment, bringing in components to produce exports, the level of technology that's gone into China has been a bit disappointing for the Chinese leadership. It's not been what they envisaged in the early 1980s. And one of the ways in which they are now trying to to increase this technological base is by doing exactly what happened with Rover. It's also the case that if you look in the United States in particular, some of the biggest complaints about China as as a market is intellectual property, or in fact the lack of intellectual property.
So there is, I think, uh, a deliberate attempt by Chinese authorities at national and local level by Chinese companies to try and go out and get that technology, to get that know-how any way they can. If that means buying Rover or what's left of Rover, great. If in some cases it means playing fast and loose with the laws of international property, then so be that as well. Uh, and this, I think, is clearly a concern not just for companies but also for governments and and he's one of the uh, the major stumbling blocks between even closer relations between America and China in terms of trade. Is there a risk that in in playing by the Chinese rules um, that companies are going to store up problems for themselves elsewhere? I think the answer to that is, is yes. Up until China's entry into the World Trade Organization in 2001, if you want to go to China to sell to China, the Chinese government have very strong bargaining chip. They control access to the Chinese market. Unless you're prepared to go along with what they say, then quite simply, you don't get access to the Chinese market. The Chinese have this thing called the catalogue. It's very interesting. Perhaps I'm showing my uh, obsession with China, saying that something (laughs) called the catalogue is is interesting. It separates out different industries into those that are encouraged, and those that are permitted, and those that are restricted. Uh, For example, if you have restricted industry, you have to agree to deals with the Chinese government in terms of perhaps exporting technology, or perhaps using local content, or perhaps exporting a certain amount of what you produce within China. And if you don't agree to that, then you don't get in. So the Chinese government has a very strong card. Theoretically, joining the World Trade Organization in 2001 should have vastly reduced the power of that card. It should have made a much even playing field for foreign investors. In practice, while the Chinese economy has become much more liberalised, it's still far from fully liberalised. Many of the uh, industries that have been moved into the encouraged sector of the catalogue, for example, have footnotes against them. And then when you look at the footnotes, you'll find that even though they're encouraged, they're encouraged with restrictions. But even if you manage to sort that out, there's another dimension here. We perhaps think of China as an authoritarian Communist Party state with all power in Beijing. Um, the leadership in Beijing says, and 1.3 billion people about their heads and do. Uh, this, this isn't the case at all. There is considerable local power in China. So even if you go to the national government, the central government, and you make the agreements and you get all the stamps, um, you still might find that it's actually the relationship with the local government on the ground that conditions what you actually can and cannot do. And if you talk to British companies, American companies, European companies that have tried to do business in China, it's often the local government that is the key issue. Local governments that will sign tax deals with local companies that that you don't get. Local governments that will insist on environmental regulations for you that are waived for local companies. Uh, And so even if you can get through the minefield of the regulations at the central level, what actually happens at the local level still means that many companies face a a tricky time in actually making money in China, doing well in the long term. Do you think that the the involvement now of Western companies is actually resulting in um, any social and political change within the country? It's often said by uh, Western governments that uh, opening China up to uh, a modern, econ- modern economy um, is the best way of promoting democracy within China. Well, there's certainly lots of social and political change. Whether this is leading towards democracy uh, any time soon, I think, is, a, is another question altogether. We've seen the 
traditional, if you like, transformation from a rural agricultural society to an urban industrial society taking place alongside or perhaps even taking place as part of the transition from state planning and socialism that we saw in the former Soviet Union and East Europe, all happening at the same time. This on its own would be enough to fundamentally change a whole set of relationships between different groups in society, between society and the party, between the party and the masses, even within the party. Add on to this the external dimension of insertion into the global economy from a position of relative isolation in the 1960s and 70s. Then you have a heady mix of, uh, uh, of social reformation, and to the extent sometimes that you look at what's happened and you think, wow, it's amazing that there haven't been more mm. 1989s. <laughs> um, the extent to which this is leading to democracy and democratisation, well, certainly the case that there uh, have been extension of democratic forms within China. Well, what do I mean by this? There is now uh, a situation where local democracy is formally permitted. So at the, at the local level you will have more candidates than seats, you will have an expectation of a certain amount of non-party members, national minorities, more, more plurality. Even uh, within the elections for at the very local level for the secretary of the local communist party there are supposedly now more elections direct participation of communist party members higher up the system we we see a more and i emphasize more everything's relative uh, transparent political system where there are more rules um it's not necessarily a rule of law but as the chinese would say rule by laws Democracy, that's a different kettle of fish altogether. One of the things that I think a lot of people are expecting in China is for the emergence of the middle class to rise and challenge the Chinese Communist Party for political power. This is an expectation in, in many theories of democracy, and I think it's somewhat implicit in a lot of the um, government statements about relationships with China. The difficulty with that model at the moment, though, is the reports that we're actually seeing a greater disparity of income increasing within China that the the poor are getting significantly poorer in comparison to the people who actually hold the hold the greatest wealth absolutely and i think the big problem with the theory is it assumes some sort of distance between the party and the middle class um if you like the uh, the party and the middle class don't have uh, too many conflicts at the moment because the party has thrown forth its own middle class or thrown forth its own entrepreneurs look when I mean, there are two sorts of entrepreneurs in China Either those that have been thrown forth from the party, they were part of the party, they were party state members, they were maybe factory managers who then bought their own factories when they were privatised, often at very low cost. Or there are the, the, the entrepreneurs who, um, in some cases, emerge independently of the party. First thing they do, join the Chinese Communist Party, mm. because that stabilises their position, guarantees, or as close to guarantees in China as you can get, access to, to power, access to finances. So you've got a coalescence, if you like, of the old political elites with the new economic elites. And the interests of the middle classes are by and large actually protected by the party state. The, the challenges the Chinese Communist Party rule at the moment aren't coming from the middle class and aren't coming from the intellectuals. They're coming from the dispossessed or those who feel left behind by this process of reform. We're, we are looking at a situation where up to 4 million people, according to the Chinese figures, last year were involved in violent demonstrations in China. These are people who are not necessarily demanding democracy 
In fact, many of them not demanding democracy at all. Some of them actually want to go back to the old system. These are the people who have lost their jobs and aren't getting the payments that they thought they were going to get because of the old state-owned enterprises being closed down. These are the people who no longer have access to health, education and welfare. These are the people who crucially see party members gaining most from reform and, and think that they're doing it corruptly. And indeed, often they are doing it corruptly. This is where the real discontent in China lies at the moment. Not from the, uh, the thrusting middle classes demanding per political power and democracy now. It's the dispossessed on a very fragmented basis demanding retribution now. De demanding a share of this great miracle now. Uh, and demanding that the party looks at itself very carefully and says, we are the party of the people, not just a party that's here to provide for ourselves. Mm. Any process of reformation is, by necessity, um, has an element of instability in it sure. and, and a lot of risks as to whether or not it's successful. Um, where do you think the risks are for China in developing this model? Well, the risks, I mean, I do think come from this uh, quite intense inequality that is... Um, I mean, this is something that the Chinese Communist Party themselves are very much aware of. The National People's Congress, the annual parliament of China, which took place in March, was characterised by people talking about the problems and how these problems should be resolved. The key thing that they're focusing on is inequality. And, and there are different levels of inequality. Inequality is multifaceted in China. Uh, we can focus perhaps on inequality between the coastal provinces and, and the rest of China. Just eight provinces along the coast, just eight out of 31 account for something like 90% of all the investment that's gone into China. Very small amount of people actually benefiting from, uh, from jobs created by this foreign investment, by the wealth created from the exports. So there's an imbalance between coast and interior, and the government now has set up plans to develop the West, uh, the rise of central China, and to reinvigorate the old industrial heartlands of uh, northeast China. There is a huge dichotomy between rural and urban China. Uh, Chinese economists have tried to factor in non-income things like welfare, health, education, so on and so forth, and suggest that the average, if there is an average urban dweller, gets six times more than the average rural dweller. Yeah. If you take the urban-rural and the, and the, you add that to the coastal interior, then the, the differences are mind-boggling. It's hard to think that they're part of the same political process. You have increasingly inequality between migrant workers and permanent workers. We have inequality between the young and the old. Uh, effectively, people who are over 50 who are unemployed in China are pretty much being written off. I mean, one of the, the really, I think, negative impacts of reform has been the extent to which health, education and welfare has collapsed in rural China. OK, it was never... It was never the most effective system. I mean, it wasn't like walking into the, the best hospitals in the West. But compared to other developing countries, the extent of health, education and welfare in rural China was, was pretty impressive. That's gone for millions of people, hundreds of millions of people. And the first people to suffer are usually women. If you have to pay for education and you can't pay, it's the girl that doesn't get it. You sort of out picture, outlined a picture there of, of a quite an, a, a negative set of outcomes of, mm. of this economic growth. Um, where, what's the positive element of this? Well, yes, that was a sort of uh, accentuate the, the negative, as it were. Um, and in some respects, I think that is worthwhile, because I do think that the, uh, the dominant impression that we get of China over here is of Shanghai. 
of wealth, of richness, of this great economic miracle. And it's fair to point out that that great economic miracle does exist alongside mm. the uh, the problems that I've just been talking about. There, there have been uh, millions of people pulled out of poverty in China. Millions. Hundreds of millions. doesn't mean to say that there aren't some people still in poverty, but hundreds of millions of people now have been drawn out of poverty. There, there has been a technological upgrading um, in a very short period of many of Chinese industries. There is an increased know-how increased skills, increased production, increased wealth. I and mean, you go to somewhere like Shanghai and you're in a modern industrial city. I think Shanghai's human development index is, is higher than that of Spain's, mm. for example. And so for, for you know many millions of people who have been able to participate in this urban industrial revolution integrated with the global economy, then reform has been a fantastic success. Even for many of those in the countryside who have moved from from the land into small-scale township and village enterprises, Mm. they have much more now than they had before, both in terms of money and in terms of all the trappings of a modern lifestyle. And so, yeah, there has been the creation of uh, new classes that have done very, very well. My point is simply to point out that alongside this, there are still downsides that need to be addressed and and indeed in which the Chinese Communist Party increasingly seems to be moving its focus of attention. Mm. Under uh, Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji, there was almost this assumption that, yes, we have these problems, but continued growth will solve them. Under Hu Jintao and Jia Bao, the new leadership, it's more of a, yes, there are these problems, and we need to intervene. We need to target. We need to move the focus of investment, rather than just assuming that growth and markets would do it on its Mm. own. The emergence of China onto the global market... Um, of such a, a, a mass, the potential to have such a massive um, market for, for Western products, but also as a producer uh, and as a source of exports, um, is there a risk that China is beginning to distort that global economy to the point where um, there are inherent risks of if that mir- if that economic miracle begins to collapse upon itself, that the global economy as a whole is is going to uh, suffer some fairly serious consequences because of that? Let me answer that question in in, in two parts. The first part is that, yes, what's happened in China, and also India, I'm not going to talk about India today, but we shouldn't neglect India, but what's happened in China has distorted, was your words, um, certainly led to a reformulation of many of the relationships that existed sort of pre-China in the global political economy. Uh, We have seen a situation where jobs have been lost across the world. Not just in other developing countries, but you know, in places like the United Kingdom, Dr. Martin's closing their factories, uh, Hoover, uh, United States, a quarter of the textile jobs gone in the United States. Not just to China, but to other cheap labour-producing countries, China being a key, key element within this. There has clearly been an impact on the, the price and distribution of key global resources. Oil is the one that people talk about mostly because China went from being a a net exporter to a net importer very quickly. But it's not just oil. In 2003, in the space of one month, the uh, the spot prices of uh, alumina increased by 100%, almost entirely due to increased demand from China. And this isn't going to go away. And in fact, in the long term, I think this is one of the biggest implications of, of China. It is what it does to this global distribution of goods and resources and also the political power relationships that go along with that. When China goes to Zimbabwe, Sudan, and says, we want to trade with you, 
And they don't go and say, we want to trade with you, but only if you democratise and only if you improve your human rights regime. No way, they're not bothered. <laughs> this provides an important alternative power relationship for countries in, in Africa, for, for Latin America, Venezuela is very happy to trade with China because it reduces its dependence, not just economically, but political on the United States. And it has really big long-term implications for uh, the flow of resources, but also for the geostrategic balance of power in large parts of the world. Um, they used to say that only China can save socialism, or only socialism can save China. Um, now you wonder whether ultimately only India and China can save capitalism, because you know the global <laughs> economy and global capitalism needs China and India uh, as to, to to actually consume what it's producing rather than to produce for others to consume. As China becomes ever more a consumer of not only what it produces, but also what other countries produce, then clearly um, the balance of global economic power. Shifts. There's a weird symbiotic relationship going on between America and China, I guess, at the moment, that China is funding the US debt Absolutely. to buy exports from China. That's <laughs> um, a fairly delicate balance, isn't it? It's a very interesting balance. I mean, when you um, read the reports in, in the States about China, you, a lot of it is in terms of China as a threat, China as a problem. Um, the Chinese respond, as you just said, you know, we're actually funding your economic strategy at the moment by holding these... Uh, um, these bonds. And it's also the case that, that all this talk about trade deficits is so misleading. You know, the, the international statistics work by looking at the deficit between, for example, China and America. But the global economy doesn't work like that on a very simplistic bilateral relationship. Let, let me take, for example, a Barbie doll. Now, I use the Barbie doll because the Barbie doll was the example used by the Chinese in their white paper on trade. Barbie is a company that's owned by uh, Mattel in America. And they subcontract to a company in, in Taiwan to produce the doll. Give us this amount of dolls at this quality at this price. Go off and do it. The Taiwanese company then gets the, uh, the plastics from the, from the Middle East. Gets the hair from Japan. Don't know why from Japan, but it does. Um, Sammy finishes it. Sends it off to Hong Kong. From Hong Kong into China where it's finished. Back out through Hong Kong into the United States. The price of the doll as it arrives at the United States, is was two US dollars. So the trade statistics show a two US dollar trade deficit between the US and China. Mm. But actually only 35 cents of it resides within China. 65 cents of it is the cost of transporting it around. But I don't know, perhaps Panamanian registered ships, who knows? Uh, the rest of it is located in Taiwan, the Middle East, Japan and in Hong Kong. Mm. But actually who gets the major benefit out of it? Mattel. <laughs> which has reduced its production costs, American consumers who get cheaper goods, and all of those of us who have um, pensions and, and whatever that, that, that have investments in, uh, in American companies. Mm. Uh, and so the idea of it, uh, a conflict between two nations standing against each other, which is the dominant picture, really uh, sits at odds with the realities of complex levels of interdependence in the globalised political economy. Do you think that picture of conflict is actually based on economic arguments or is there a more uh, political or you might even say uh, racial issue going on here? This isn't an economic argument, is it? I mean, there is an economic argument. I mean, despite everything that I've just said, I mean, if, if you are a textile worker in uh, Carolina and you lose your, your job as it goes to China... There's a fair chance that you will blame China. <laughs> you know, I mean, there is a, you know, real jobs are really being lost in this process. 
but you're entirely right, it's to do with perceptions and, and politics and the way that economics are used as part of a political struggle. Um, there, were, there were huge concerns in the United States when a Chinese company wanted to buy an American oil company. Uh, th- there is clearly, I think, an extent to which people are concerned about becoming dependent on the Chinese economy. I think that is the, you know, as I keep saying, that concern should be about the future, and I think the the contemporary is exaggerated. There is an extent to which China is deliberately exaggerated in importance to justify certain political arguments, not just in the States, but particularly there. There is an extent to which people don't trust China because of its political system and political history and, and its regime. Yeah, it's, it is authoritarian. Uh, it isn't democratic. It, it doesn't accept many of the norms of the global liberal order. Or if it does, it does so reluctantly because it has to. But you're right, I think there is an element of racism in here as well. You know, this fear of... China is the orange peril. It's the red peril because it's communist and it's the yellow peril because it's Asian. You know, the fear of the Mongol horde sweeping across and dominating the world. So so China fulfills both the, the red peril and the yellow peril and this makes it particularly... Uh, uh, particularly important, I think, in many of the debates, the political debates in uh, in the United States in particular. Let's let's face it; it is mainly in the states, but but also in other parts of the world. Where do you think we're going to be in ten years, both with China, uh, but also China's place uh, in the broader global context? In, in the next, there, there is an important ten years for China now. There, there is an, a renewed focus on dealing with inequality, and I, you know, perhaps some of the, the growth rates will be sacrificed only slightly, though, uh, to divert more resources to central, northeastern, and, and western China. I think there is that agenda there. I think this government is aware that if it doesn't do this, then its own position actually might be under threat. Um, I think that we will see a continuation, if you like, of the, the muddling through in the financial system in China, where we have a financial system that that shouldn't really carry on functioning, given the level of debt within it, but it has done for the last 10 years, and I suspect it will carry on doing. I think we will continue to see China sucking in more jobs, uh, sucking in more investment. But increasingly, I think we will see a China that is sucking in investment, not just because of cheap labour, manual labour, but because of the skills. I think we will see a China that is locating more of the supply process uh, within China itself, providing more of the components uh, for exports and relying less on imported components. I think we will see a China that liberalises, yes, um, but often gives with one hand in liberalisation, but then perhaps takes away with another. So the idea that the Chinese uh, domestic economy is going to become a very easy place to foreign firms to operate in very quickly, I think um, I have my doubts, to be quite honest. There are, there are many ways of um, liberalising, but then uh, slipping back some protection when hopefully nobody's looking. China's place in the world, 14% increase in military spending in the, uh, the budget for 2006 to 2007. Maintenance of a uh, very hostile position towards Taiwanese independence. Continuation of a rhetoric of hostility towards Japan, all signal the, if you like, the the bellicose version of China, which plays well, I think, Mm. in in a Western market that, in some respects, expects China to behave like that. At the same time, I think that we are in for a period of greater cooperation between China and Southeast Asia. Not the creation of an Asian community on the, the European model, 
but but I think we're already in the process of uh, a much stronger coordination uh, between Southeast Asian nations and China. In terms of China's global profile, ever bigger. There is no way out of this. Chinese economy will get bigger. China will become a bigger part of the global trading system. China will probably have greater foreign currency <laughs> reserves and even more American bonds. But I really think that the the long-term significance... Now, people who, who worry about China being powerful because made in China is stamped on the back of TVs that are, carry foreign brand names or, or T-shirts that made by Nike and Reebok or any of that, forget that. I just don't see where the power relationship there is. Look for the way in which China's resource diplomacy leads to not just a diversion of supplies over the next few years, but also a reorientation of the geostrategic environment as China engages more and more with what we used to call the third world. Perhaps China engages more and more with its partners uh, in Central Asia and uh, in the former Soviet Union. Uh, as China builds relationships across the world and relationships predicated not on the promotion of the liberal global order, but perhaps predicated first and foremost on resources with a secondary impact of providing what the Chinese want, which is a, a block to the unipolar hegemon of the United States. Professor Breslin, thank you very much. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. If you'd like to comment on what you've heard in this podcast, you can do so by visiting the University of Warwick website at www.warwick.ac.uk.